0: Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Are you ready for some football? Well, Walters is, and Walters has all of the games for you all weekend long. Reservations are limited and can be found on all Walters social media channels.
1: Walk-ins will also be available, but will be on a first-come, first-served basis. So don't get left out and make your reservation today.
2: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Here's the set of the pitch. Swing and a miss. Strike him out. Running the fastball in on Hilliard. So Espino tied him up even though it was 88 miles an hour. Again, you throw him enough off speed. The idea is to make that 88 to 90 mile an hour fastball look that much faster. And it's worked most of the day for him. Hilliard way late on that pitch. Tying his career high with seven strikeouts. Six of the Ks on fastballs. And most of them have been elevated fastballs. And welcome to Nat Chat from Monday,
0: September 20th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of Massinsports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. Well, for the first time in more than three months, the Nationals have themselves a shutout win. And that perhaps says as much as anything about the state of the Nationals pitching this season. But a 3 nothing shutout win over the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park On Sunday afternoon to avoid a three-game sweep and to inch ever so closer to making sure that the Nationals do not have a one hundred loss season in this twenty twenty-one season. That's now sixty-one and eighty-eight on the year. Mark, we are not used to this. Zeros being put up across the board by the Nats pitching staff, and in a series in which we saw some of the worst of the Nats pitching staff. we see some of the best, and I guess nothing epitomizes the Nats pitching staff this season better than this. In a series in which you had a highly touted pitching prospect start, a $140 million starter start, it's the journeyman, our guy, the secret weapon, Paolo Espino, who ends up giving the Nats by far their best outing from a starting pitcher in the series.
1: It was a great start by Paolo, and then it only took five relievers to cover the final three and the third innings, so good on them. <laughs> five guys combined for, uh, that would be 10 outs. But hey, scoreless kept him off the board. A couple of little little questionable moments, but it all worked out in the end. But yeah, I want to talk about Palo because at different stages along the way this year, we kind of thought to ourselves, oh, maybe the, uh, the carriage is turning back into a pumpkin here. And certainly his numbers right now aren't what they were in the first half of the year when they were just out of this world. But you know what? He's over 100 innings on the season now. He's got an ERA in the threes. And if Anybody had told you that on opening day or even on the day that he made that first emergency start for Steven Strasburg, that you're going to get 100 innings from this guy and a sub four ERA. How great is that? You know, we're well past the point of being able to say that anything on a team level is going to be a positive this year. But there are some individuals that are definitely worth celebrating. And to me, he is high on the list. This has been such a pleasure to watch him all year. And I've said it, you know, after every time he wins one of these games, but you can just tell what it means to him. This season has meant a lot to him.
0: Five and two-thirds scoreless innings on Sunday afternoon for our guy Paolo. Seven strikeouts versus three walks. He gave up just three hits, a double and two singles. Didn't necessarily throw a lot of strikes. Wasn't necessarily pitch efficient. 52 strikes versus 39 balls on 91 pitches. But he was effective. I mean, the run prevention, it was there. You mentioned the ERA. It is down to 394 over 102 and two-thirds innings this season. That covers 33 games, including 17 starts. Here's all you need to know. There are two pitchers who have an ERA under four over at least 75 innings for the Nationals this season. Those two pitchers, Max Scherzer and Paolo Espino. I mean, to me, it's, you know, six and one half dozen and the other, Scherzer and Espino, Espino and Scherzer. But those two guys, the only guys, at least 75 innings, ERA under four for the Nationals this season That says a lot about a lot, but it is very much a credit to Paolo.
1: Just like they all drew it up at the start of the year. This is exactly who we expected to do this for them. Hey, I'll tell you what, to me, the impressive thing in this one was the seven strikeouts. That matched a career high, and he got them early. He had chances for number eight to set a new career high and couldn't get there. But what struck me about it was six of the seven came on fastballs. This is a guy who throws 88 to 90 with his fastball, and he's able to, to finish off hitters with it. And it's a testament to his ability to locate it where he needs to. But also, as he pointed out, because his off-speed stuff is so effective and hitters are generally looking for that, especially with two strikes, it allows him to then kind of sneak some fastballs in there with two strikes and catch him off guard. And all of a sudden, an an 89-mile-an-hour heater looks a lot harder than that to some of these guys. I mean, he made some pretty good hitters look bad up there. Charlie Blackman, Trevor Story, those were impressive head-to-head encounters for Espino and afterwards he was saying that one of the things that some like for example my dad will ask me uh hey what what do you think your goals are now for the end of the season so one of the things that I, I told him was like I wanted to
0: throw over 100 innings and uh I mean I was able to do it and the other one that I told him was like I ho- hope I I hope I can get to 100 strikeouts so those are I mean things that yeah I, I do want it to try to get over it so those are little things that I. I mean, talking to, I mean, close uh, people, but yeah, there is very
1: special that I, I was able to throw over hundred innings. That, that was one of my, uh, one of my things that I wanted to do. You know what? He's got 90 and he's got two more starts. So he's got a real shot at that. So good on him. We think of him as this control artist, pitch to contact guy, but he's striking out hitters at a decent rate and is doing it despite a fastball that barely hits 90 miles an hour.
0: Yeah, 789 strikeouts per nine innings, which, you know, these days isn't special, but by Paolo standards, that's not bad. I mean, again, like you said, he's not known to be a strikeout pitcher. So to be right around eight strikeouts per nine innings, you know, to be flirting with a strikeout per inning, that's pretty good. That's not bad at all. That plays. And, you know, as we have these conversations now about, well, what does this mean for next season? What does that mean for next season. Is it possible that Paolo Espino is securing himself a spot in the Nats rotation for next season? Is it possible that, look, we know the Nats need a lot of work when it comes to the pitching, but we also know that you're not just going to get a bunch of new pitchers across the board for next year. Like, decent number of these guys will be back if for no other reason than they have to be back. Could it be that the Nationals can at least pencil in Paolo in the rotation for next year, or do you not think that Mike Rizzo would approach things that way?
1: It's a good question. I mean, he certainly has earned it more than some others who are going to be in the mix for it. The issue is going to be, you know, the pedigree of what he is and what he's supposed to be. And in a way, his versatility may be to his detriment in that, where you see a guy who you know has had success in a variety of roles. And I think, you know, in a perfect world, he would be able to do that and be a swing man and sometimes long reliever and occasional spot starter and pitch multiple innings out of the bullpen, whatever it is that you need, that's a really valuable thing to have, as we've discussed. But it may be to his detriment because if you're Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez trying to map this all out, you might think to yourself, okay, let's try to find five better starters and then allow Espino to be in that kind of role. But here's what I would say. There are so many unknowns going into next year. And even we can say now that going into February, that there are going to be guys in camp that you really don't know what to expect from, either because of injury or because of this year's performance. So Paolo Spino's is going to be there, and they're going to prepare him as though he needs to start. And it would not surprise me at all if you get to the end of March, and either because others are hurt or others have not performed the way you want, they end up saying, you know what? You're in our rotation. That may not be their perfect plan. They may ideally hope that there are five better options, and he's a swing man for them next year. But given how many things have to go right, it would not surprise me at all if he ends up as one of the five.
0: Yeah, I mean, if what Davey Martinez said a few days ago is true, and that the plans for next season are healthy Strasburg and rehabbing Corbin, and once again, good luck with all that, you better have a Paolo Espino waiting in the wings. And so, yeah, maybe he's your Strasburg insurance, maybe he's your Corbin insurance, maybe he's just your insurance, period. He's your sixth starter, and as soon as you need a new starter for the rotation, he's the guy you go to, which is not a bad way to approach things. Paolo Espino, age 34 season, we've talked about this in the past, but understand not eligible for free agency until 2027, his age 40 season. I hope like heck he pitches until then just so we can say, what are we going to do about Paolo? He's going into free agency. He's turning 40. How do we handle this? I can't wait for that. We built up for years to the Bryce Harper, Manny Machado free agencies. I want to start a build up now to the Paolo Espino free agency for that 2027 season.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know the the writers in New York are just frothing at the mouth to get him into pinstripes here someday. And we're going to get to that 2026 season. And boy, if the team's not in contention, we're going to be hearing about they may have to sell Paolo at the trade deadline. And you just hope you can get some decent prospects for him. Uh, it's going to happen. I think it's inevitable that he is the next big free agent that the learners are going to have to try to lock up. Maybe you make him a big offer, see if he'll take it. But chances are he's going to be tempted by free agency at age 40. And uh, I really want to see what the market has out there for him.
0: That's the thing. I mean, people talk about you got to lock up Soto. You got to lock up Espino. <laughs> all right. I mean, come on. I mean, he's not arbitration eligible until 2024. His age 37 seat. He's not even starting on arbitration for another few years. Like This is absurd, the contractual scenario that this guy is in. But again, it's a credit to him, a 10th round pick in 2006. And it's really not until this season that he finally breaks through and is a legitimate major leaguer and does a good job against a Rockies lineup that we know can hit. Ask Josiah Gray, ask Patrick Corbin. Like, I take nothing away from what he did on Sunday afternoon. And I tell you what, this bullpen, which we know is not good, ends up actually being quite good over the final two games of this series. If nothing else, it's nice for the bullpen to be able to breathe a little bit over these last two games in terms of having outings that you can take some pride in. The Nationals, we know the bullpen was not good in the 9-8 loss on Friday night, but Ryan Harper and Sean Nolan in the 6 nothing loss on Saturday, five scoreless innings, and then five Nats relievers in this 3 nothing win on Sunday afternoon combined for three and a third scoreless innings, Austin Voth, Tanner Rainey, Mason Thompson, Andres Machado, and Kyle Finnegan. So you know Finnegan, I guess, is the headline guy just because he'd been so bad in each of his previous two outings. He walks the leadoff man to begin that top of the ninth inning. You say to yourself, oh gosh, here we go again. Leadoff five-pitch walk with Ryan McMahon. But ultimately, you get a scoreless top of the ninth from Kyle. So good to see that But I guess the best performance, well I don't guess, I know the best performance of these relievers was Tanner Rainey, who looked awesome in his return to the majors. A perfect top of the seventh inning with three strikeouts.
2: Rainey kicks and fires. Check swing, ball in the dirt, they appeal. Strike three, says the umpire David Rackley. Ruiz picks it up, he'll tag Welker, and Tanner Rainey impressively strikes out the side. Hilliard, Nunez, and Welker all strike out against Tanner Rainey in the top of the seventh inning.
0: So the Nats recalled Rainey from AAA Rochester on Saturday. He had been at Rochester since August 1st. He ended up spending more than a month and a half at AAA. Remember, he had had a mess of a season prior to that demotion to AAA on August 1st, an ERA of 720 over 25 innings, five home runs allowed over the 25 innings at the Major League level this season. I know it's one outing. You can't sit here and say Tanner Rainey's been fixed, but that's the Tanner Rainey we saw last season. He looked great in this game on Sunday.
1: Yeah, I think that was the highlight from the bullpen performance, even more than, than fitting it. I get it because it's the ninth inning and he had a couple blown saves that that was an important bounce back for him. But to me, Rainey was the story there. And yeah, you can say, well, this is just one outing. Don't read too much into it. But here's the interesting thing. His last three appearances in Rochester, and that's all over the last week, three perfect innings, three strikeouts in each case. So if you want to combine it all into one week, and I get that it's not the same thing when you're facing A hitters. But over the last week, Tanner Rainey has faced 12 batters and struck them all out. So that's not nothing, okay? Now, I don't know what it means for his next time out, but he said that this, in his mind, felt like a continuation of what he was doing there. He really worked hard, at, as he described it, syncing up his body, getting his timing right, staying back a little bit more on his leg before releasing the pitch. And you could see, I mean, the stuff was electric. He was throwing strikes, 11 of 13 pitches for strikes. That's fantastic for him. You know, you can strike out the side, but sometimes it takes you 20 pitches and you're going to a full count on everyone. No, that wasn't the case here. He was getting ahead. He was keeping in the strike zone. He's throwing 96, 97 under control with a pretty good slider as well. I would not be surprised if we see him in a safe situation before the season is over. Let's see how this all goes. But I know they would love for him to get a confidence boost going into the winter And as much as Finnegan has had to work, and like we said the other day, for the most part been very good, probably getting worn down here a little bit, I would not be surprised at all if they find an opportunity to give Finnegan a day off and let Rainey try to close a game.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Rainey profiles much more as a closer than Finnegan does. I mean, Rainey's got elite level stuff when he's on. He's a tremendous strikeout pitcher when he's on. It's that last part of things, when he's on, that like he is the issue and has been the issue this season, but he was excellent last season and... I mean, we had the conversation going into this season of if Brad Hand falters, like Rainey would be kind of an obvious guy to go to as your closer. You know, Hudson as well, but Tanner Rainey has that kind of stuff. So good to see it. We know how it is with these relievers. They can look great one game and terrible the next. So I just don't know how you can feel great about anybody. But if you're coming off having spent a month and a half at A to get your act together, this is what you want to see. I mean, he looked really good on Sunday. So good for him. I mean, you feel good for him. It's not been a good season for him. As we know, he comes through, he gets the job done. And uh, the Nationals bullpen over these final two games does do a good job. So good job. We kill him when things don't go well. So let's praise him when things do do well. I do want to ask you about this. So Mason Thompson in the top of the eighth, he gets two outs, but he also gives up two hits. Although there's a lot of bad luck involved with this stuff. The second hit was an infield single, but the first hit, two-out double by Charlie Blackman, on which Yadiel Hernandez failed to make a running catch in shallow left center. Weird play. Nats ruined a shift. No infielders went out to
2: try to get the ball. Now the pitch swung on. Blackman hits it high in the air. Shallow left center field. Thomas and Hernandez both coming in. The left fielder Hernandez can't get there. Picked up by Thomas. Runner trying for second. The throw there is high and not in time, and Blackman into second base.
0: But Lane Thomas, as a center
2: fielder, didn't take charge at all
0: and left it up to poor Yadiel, who's, you know, not exactly known as a great glove man to try to come charging in to make the catch. You're there live, so you get a different perspective on things. What did you see on that play? Because it seemed watching it on TV, Lane Thomas should have taken charge. He's the patrolman, he's a center fielder, and he kind of left it up to Yadiel to make the play.
1: I agree. I think in the end, based on who was there, I thought Thomas should have taken charge out of the two of them. But watching it live from high up in the press box, my first thought was, where's an infielder? Where's Escobar? Now, they were in a shift, so he wasn't in a perfect position like where you would normally be. But I watched on the replay of it at a wide angle. He didn't even break back when the ball went in the air. So I don't know if that's like his assignment when you're shifted like that is don't even bother trying for it or if he just didn't think it had any chance of being anywhere close to him. But where that ball landed, that's typically where you'd see a shortstop camped underneath it, at least if he's playing semi-close to his regular position. But yeah, we've seen what Yadiel Hernandez is in the outfield. We know that he's out there because he's a hitter. We've also seen the last couple of days, by the way, Davey put Stevenson in for defense late. So that tells you everything you need to know about that, because Davey hasn't done that a lot anywhere in the field, and that one he has done. But yeah, if you're a center fielder and you know who your left fielder is, And for whatever reason, because of their alignment, you didn't think the shortstop was going to be in play at all. That is one that you take charge and try to take it from him. And that was unfortunate. And because of that, and then it was a little dribbler to third that Kibum couldn't get the throw off in time. I was kind of surprised that he pulled Thompson. I thought like, what's the harm in giving him a chance to finish it out? But he liked Machado. Machado got the job done. It was nice finish it off for the strikeout. So it all worked out in the end. But like I was joking before, if you need five relievers to get 10 outs... And we're not in a highly competitive, like we're matching up left and right all over the place here. These are all right-handers. You'd like to do that on fewer than five relievers, I would think.
0: Yeah, Machado looked great. Uh, struck out CJ Krohn on three pitches. But no doubt. I mean, you could argue with some of these guys, like leave them in. I mean, you could have argued that with Rainey. He didn't throw that many pitches. Like, would it have been the worst thing in the world for him to pitch another inning? But the Nationals, they very clearly like to do this of get in, get out, which I... I don't blame them for like if you have a good bullpen, that's probably the way to do it. But the issue is they don't really have a good bullpen. And we saw in the previous game how the approach of just letting one guy ride it out can work. Sean Nolan did a really good job in in that long relief role, albeit in a loss on Saturday.
2: So, you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Great kicks and throws. And a swing and a long drive right center field. Subtle crushes this one. Way back there it goes, and it's long, long gone. It just misses the second deck to the left. A tape measure home run by Juan Soto, number 26 on the season. This ended up being a pretty unremarkable
0: series for the Nationals offensively. We've had a bunch of series lately where, like, you know, a bunch of guys have done well. Didn't really have that in this series, but you did have a few guys who did quite well. And leading the list, of course, is the best hitter on the planet. Juan Soto, who only gets on base one time on Sunday afternoon. Jeez, what's wrong with him? But the one time was a big time, a mammoth solo home run. Juan Soto in the bottom of the third, a two-out solo shot off Rocky starting pitcher John Gray on a moonshot to center field for a 2-0 Nats lead. The home run going a projected 454 feet per stat cast. He's had a few of these here lately in terms of like these blasts. That's one of the bigger ones he's had this season. That was an impressive visual, him just skyrocketing that baseball of John Gray to give the Nats the 2-0 lead.
1: So Dan Kolko tweeted this, and I had the same thought at the time watching it. We don't ever remember seeing anybody hit a ball to where that one landed. Doesn't mean it's the longest home run. But if you can picture Nationals Park, deep right center field, you have the lower deck, and then the second deck goes right above it. And at that back corner, there's a little bit of like a landing area. It's – for a long time, they had the All-Star Game logo hanging up over there, even like years after the All-Star Game for some reason. And I thought for a second, the ball was actually going to reach that concourse there in that landing area. It didn't quite like hit one of the last rows of the stands and then came back bouncing forward. But I can't remember, Dan couldn't remember anybody hitting a ball there in a game. That is a Titanic blast at 454 feet. And just, I don't know how to explain it, but just the sound, just the, the everything about it off the bat, like you didn't even have to really watch the flight of the ball. You just knew that was a really good one for him. And 26 on the year. It very briefly put him in the lead for the batting title by percentage points over Trey Turner. He's now back a point down. Turner, as we're recording, this is at 316. Soto and Bryce, both at 315. But it put him in the lead at the moment. His OPS is 990. He's got a shot at 1,000 OPS. If you had said that at the All-Star break, we never would have believed that. He's going to end up having really a Juan Soto style year. And when we look back on it years from now, you're never going to fully appreciate the path that it took him to get there. His second half has just been off the charts good.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned the batting average, the slugging percentage for Juan Soto, 531 now on the year, the major league leading on base percentage 459 on the year. I think it's funny that his batting average goes down with what he does on Sunday because he only goes one for four. Some might say that's an indictment of batting average as a statistic. He hits his great home run and the batting average goes down because batting average counts a bunt single the same way batting average counts a home run. But I digress. But Juan Soto continues just to do so well. He in this series goes three for nine with a homer, a double, a single and four walks. So he gets on base seven times over the three games and you just continue to be impressed by him. It's one of these grooves. Look, we know he's capable of this. We've seen him do this But I don't want to ever take it for granted. Like, it really is impressive how every game he brings it, every game he does something we end up talking about on this podcast. And even in this lost season, you know, I remember after the sell-off, there was some talk of, you know, maybe Soto is uh, not disengaged, but, you know, you kind of lose some of the motivation and you're kind of down on, you know, the state of the season and the state of the franchise. And you don't get any sense like that. I mean, he, he seems to be his usual jovial self. He's obviously his usual productive self. And he's really turned it up a notch over the last, say, month or so. It's really been remarkable how he and the rest of this offense— I know this wasn't necessarily a great series, but it's all done well. Like, this has been a really good run for all these guys. So, all credit to him. And Josh Bell ends up having another productive game on Sunday and another productive series for him. Bell gets on base four times on Sunday afternoon. Two for two with two singles— and two walks. Josh in the Nats' one-run first, a two-out-six pitch walk, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Bottom of the third, a two-out-five pitch walk. In the Nats' one-run six, Bell, a leadoff single. And then Bell in the bottom of the eighth, a leadoff single on a 1-2 pitch. Does get thrown out at second base and trying to stretch the hit into a double. He gave us the, uh, the patented Josh Bell slide, which is more like a, a belly flop, but that's okay. Gets tagged out, but that's fine. On base four times in the game, was that long ago we made a big deal out of Josh Bell's OPS for the season, getting 800. That's now at 828 on the year. I mean, what a job by Josh. He in the series only starts two games, but he goes three for six with three singles and three walks in the series. Your two best hitters on the national, Soto and Bell, have been your two most productive guys for weeks now.
1: Yeah, and I think they go hand in hand. I think they have made a difference that, you know, Soto got pitched to all four at-bats in this game. And at least some of that, I have to believe, is that there's some respect for Josh Bell hitting behind him. You're not just going to give Juan Soto free passes. Now, obviously, if he comes up with runners on second and third and two outs, yeah, you're going to intentionally walk him. But there were none of those like, oh, hey... We're just not going to let Juan Soto beat us no matter what. We're going to pitch around him and take our chances with Josh Bell. No, that didn't happen at all here. And I think in part, it's because of what Bell has become. And we just talked about Soto's season numbers. Okay. Bell, he's now at 259 average. So almost up to 260, 339 on base. So almost 340, 489 slugging. He could very easily, before this is all said and done, finish with 260, 340, and 500. And I think everybody would absolutely take that from you. And the other stat I just noticed as I'm looking through his stat line, he's got 91 strikeouts on the year. And that's honestly, for a guy like him, that's not that high of a total. If he ends up like right around 100 strikeouts for what we picture like this big free swinging slugger, that's not a high total in today's game in 2021. That's not bad at all. Again, the numbers at the end are going to make you think that he had a very consistent good quality season. You're never going to realize how it started to get to this finish point.
0: Yeah, the Nationals actually aren't that bad in terms of guys who strike out a lot, especially since trading away Kyle Schwerber. He was a big strikeout guy. I mean, Victor Robles was a big strikeout guy, but he's obviously not with the team at the major league level at this point. Zimmerman has struck out a decent amount, but otherwise the Nats are pretty good at having guys who don't strike out all that much. And I think Josh Bell largely fits into that mold. Luis Garcia did not have a big series, but he did have a big hit in the game on Sunday afternoon. Uh, RBI single, Garcia and the Nats one run six, a two out RBI single to right field for a three nothing Nats lead. I know you've noted this. Garcia really is just destroying left-handed pitching. And this is kind of funny because the Rockies brought in a lefty reliever, Lucas Gilbreth, so he just comes into the game, faces Garcia. I don't know, maybe somebody needs to tell Bud Black about the Luis Garcia splits. Luis Garcia gets that single. He now this season has an OPS of 909 versus lefties as compared to an OPS of 573 versus righties. Like Luis Garcia is an entirely different hitter against left-handed pitching as compared to against right-handed pitching.
1: He's hitting 346 now off of them, slugging 538. That's remarkable for a 21-year-old left-handed hitter. And like we've mentioned before, he was doing this at AAA. So this isn't just out of the blue here at the big league level. And I think some of it is he bats with a little bit of an open stance, and he really is good at turning on an inside pitch and driving it to right field. For the moment, pitchers are approaching him that way. And you would think eventually they're going to start feeding him away from... Away away, and his only hope is to now do what Juan Soto does, and that's drive the ball to the opposite field. So we haven't seen him need to do a lot of that. But for now, if he's able to take advantage of those inside pitches and turn on them as a left-handed hitter, that's fantastic. They just got to get him now going against righties, and you may have something here. But you know, the more you watch him play, the more you think to yourself, there's something there. Like we can see that there is some real talent there. It's just a matter of putting it all together, gaining a little more experience because, again, he's only 21, and he really didn't even play that long in the minor leagues because he was hurt one year. He's very raw, and to be in the spot that he's in, I think he's done a pretty good job. You want to see more consistency, obviously. You want to see him start to hit right-handed hitters. You want to see defense a little bit better on a day-in and day-out basis, but there is something there. I don't know what he's going to end up becoming, but there's enough there that makes you say you want to keep seeing more of him as opposed to some of the others who I think were starting to maybe sense that there's not as much there as we hoped there would be.
0: Well, and that may be a segue to what I was going to get to next, or maybe it's just a giant coincidence, but Carter Keeboom is back to really scuffling. Carter Keboom on Sunday afternoon had a rough day at the plate, so he ends up going in the game 0 for 4 with two strikeouts and leaves six men on base. Carter in the series, I mean, he remains an everyday third baseman. He was an at-starting third baseman in all three games in the series. He goes one for 12 with a single. Carter's OPS for the season has declined by 122 points since the start of games on September 5th. His OPS has plummeted big time this month. This has not been a good month of September for Carter. Now, he did make a nice defensive play in the game on Sunday. We beat him up when he struggles defensively, so I do want to give him credit for this. And the
2: pitch. And the pitch. Swing and a tapper up the third base line. Fair ball field by Keeboom, charging in, throws in the run. Out is the call at first. Good play by Keeboom. For the second out in the
0: top of the eighth, a Brendan Rodgers grounder. Keeboom did a nice job of charging in, making the scoop, and then delivering the strong throw to first base. And Josh Bell, I credit him too. He made a nice stretch for the out. But, you know, Carter Keeboom is supposed to be a plus hitter. And for a while we were seeing signs that he was maybe coming around, but he's back to being the Carter Keeboom we've seen too often at the major league level so far in his career.
1: Yeah, look, he's got, and by the way, I, I knew what I was doing there. I knew how to get that segue. We've done enough. We've done 149 shows now. I know what I'm doing here, Al. Come on, give me a little credit. He's up to 372 big league plate appearances now, spread out over three seasons, most of them obviously this year. And his total numbers over that are a 201 batting average, 306 on base, and 292 slugging percentage. The numbers are a little bit better this year, but not a lot. And while there have been some moments here and there that we thought, okay, we're starting to see some evidence of this taken in in its entirety, we really aren't seeing a lot. And yeah, 372 play appearances, that's not enough to say you absolutely know what somebody is or isn't. I'm not saying you give up on him, but we have more of a body of work on him than we do of Luis Garcia. And that is a little bit more concerning to me, that at this point, there's been more bad from Keyboom than good. And at some point, you're going to look at this and say, okay, is he really the answer here or not? Now, I don't know that they're in a position with all the other needs they have to say, we're going to go find another third baseman this winter. And they may just say, hey, we're giving him another year. And the position that we're in rebuilding, there's no reason not to keep putting him out there. But One of these days, he's got to start to put things together enough that you can say, okay, we see where this is going. We see development. We see him becoming a long-term piece of the puzzle here. And unfortunately, to this point, those have been way too few and far between to believe that it's going to happen.
0: You can always email the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Brian McLaughlin wrote us, after filling the desperate need for pitching, well, that's debatable whether they filled it, but I get what you're saying. Looks like third base needs to be a priority. And he outlined some of the numbers that you just laid out about Carter Keyboom. I mean, with Keyboom, I give the Nats credit. They have done the thing with him that, you know, I wanted them to do with Victor Robles and they didn't do. They put him out there every day. You cannot use the excuse of, well, you know, he's being jerked in and out of the lineup. Like, no, Carter Keyboom has been a fixture as the Nats' everyday third baseman for months now. He pretty consistently is batted in like that number five, number six spot. I mean, he's been given every opportunity to succeed. And, you know, for a while, it looked like it was going all right. Maybe he gets back to that over these final two weeks. But it's disturbing what's happening in this month of September, which is not a new month anymore. You know, we're well past the halfway mark of the month. And uh, the numbers have come tumbling down. And that is going to be interesting for next year because it felt like a while you said, all right, well, we've seen enough good from Carter to want to see more for next season. I don't know. Now I feel like we maybe need to rethink some of that, depending on how the rest of this season goes. And I would say at the very least, the Nats need to have another option, another third base option for next year. Like you cannot just do Carter, Key, Boomer, Bus for next season. Although given the Nats recent history, they can say it's Carter, Key, or Bus going into a season and uh, there's no reason to believe them because they do it like every year and then it ends up not playing out that way. But yeah, that's been disappointing. We've seen good stuff from Lane Thomas, good stuff from Riley Adams, but uh, not a lot of good stuff. From Carter Keeboom, at least uh, not lately.
1: Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate. He will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471
0: Constant professional. If you can enjoy my conversations with you, knows a lot about the game, as we all know. His background
1: is unbelievable. Going back to his grandfather, his dad, him, I mean, uh, a world of knowledge in that family of of baseball. But what a great person.
0: Well, I mentioned Riley Adams. He doesn't start a single game in this series. Kbert Ruiz started two games. Alex Avila got the other start. And there was some news with Alex Avila on Sunday. I don't think this was necessarily a shock to anybody, but uh, he is retiring. Alex Avila in a pregame press conference making the announcement he'll be retiring at the end of the season. This is his age 34 season, of course, his only season with the Nationals. You know, I think like we've talked about with Ryan Zimmerman, if you're Alex Avila, you really don't have to hang your head in shame. I, I think Alex in very limited playing time, I'll grant you that this season, has actually done a pretty good job. 347 on base percentage. He's got a defensive wins above replacement of 0.7. When Jan Gomes is here, we talked about it a lot how Gomes and Avila were so good at throwing out runners trying to steal. I mean, obviously the Nats parked Davila on the 10-day injured list for months with the uh, bilateral calf strains off that wonderful second base experiment back in July against the Dodgers. But, you know, limited action, he's done a nice job. And given that his dad runs the Detroit Tigers, I'm sure Alex can have a number of options in in a post-playing career. But it sounded like from what he said to you guys, he very much wants to stay in the game of baseball.
1: Yeah, he's not going anywhere. And even so much so that he wants to be in baseball next year. He wants to take the winter, be with his family, and enjoy that, but he said he doesn't want to sit around for a whole year out of the game and then try to work his way back in. Now, it comes from a baseball family. It starts with his father, Al, longtime GM of the Tigers, but he's got other relatives. It goes back to his grandfather. Tommy Lasorda was his godfather, if you didn't know that. Baseball is in his blood, and... He's very much at peace with this decision. He didn't just come to this conclusion. He said he decided several months ago and, in fact, decided before the bilateral calf strains, in case you were wondering if that's what pushed him over the edge. He already knew prior to that, and he just decided he wanted to announce it now as we got closer to the finish line. But this guy had a nice career, and I don't know enough people know that around here because we only saw him here at the very tail end of it. But 13 seasons, he was an all-star. He reached the playoffs six times. He was a silver slugger. He got MVP votes one year. And as he pointed out, probably his proudest thing is that he was a catcher for really a who's who of elite starting pitchers over the last decade. Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, David Price, John Lester, Jake Arrieta when he was with the Cubs. Obviously now Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg for a little bit this year, Patrick Corbin, both in Arizona when he was good, and then, and then this year here, just because a guy who caught in the World Series, Paolo Espino, of course, as Tim Shovers points out to me. I mean, that might be number one on the list. This is a guy who had a very good career and was on some really good teams, caught in a World Series, and his only regret, as a lot of the guys from those Tigers teams of the 2011 to 14 era would say, is that they never got to win a World Series. And Max Scherzer Nani Bal Sanchez did get to do that in 2019, and I'm sure for Alex, it was a little bit tough watching them do that, knowing how much he, he wished he was part of that team. But he leaves with his head high. It was a disappointing season, obviously, for him, but everyone around here really liked him. Even while he was hurt, he was a good influence on the young guys and even on the veterans as well. And um, there's no doubt he's going to be in baseball for a long time in some capacity.
0: Yeah, and he got to play second base, which he had never done in his major league career. The other thing with Alex Avila is he got traded by his dad, which is one of the more unique things you'll ever see. He got signed by the Detroit Tigers in the 2016-2017 offseason and then got dealt by the Tigers in the summer of 2017. That's got to be such a weird deal as a dad that you have your son on the team. I mean, I can't imagine that that's a great setup because, I mean, obviously it's like ripe with conflicts of interest. And so I don't know if he got traded because of that. Like his pops was like, all right, this isn't a good deal. Or if his pops was like, no, this is a great baseball deal. Get this Avila kid out of here because we can do better than him. But that is really funny that his dad traded him in the summer of 2017.
1: And I brought it up to him today and he laughed. He said he thought personally that that's the best trade his dad ever made. <laughs> and, and, and and I don't think he was entirely joking. I think he actually felt it was, it was a smart move. And as tough as that would have to be, That maybe, and I believe this So it was July 31st, 2017, it was Avila and Justin Wilson to the Cubs for Hamer Candelario and Isaac Paredes. And I believe this was at the point that the Tigers did finally realize that they were no longer going to be contenders and decided to tear it down. And the Cubs were, at that point, still contenders, and so they made the trade. I almost feel like if he hadn't traded him, you'd have less respect for Al Avila as a GM because- If you're really going to do the job the right way, you can't play favorites. You can't say, oh, well, my son's on the team. I don't want to trade him. No, that was the smart baseball move to make. And I think Alex appreciated and respected him for it. I just want to know, I didn't ask him this part, like, was he in on the conversations all along? Or was it all of a sudden, hey, uh, son, come in here. I got to tell you something. You've been traded. I have no idea. That would be fascinating to me to find that one out.
0: Well, and what if Alex had stayed on the Tigers for a while and you have to negotiate a contract with him? I mean, how how would that have gone? That as a as a GM you're negotiating with your son's agent? Like, I don't know. That just does not seem that does not seem like a healthy situation. So probably for the best if that happened. But yeah, I would think too, if Alex wants he could even get into broadcasting. He's a pretty good talker, smart guy. You know, most of these catchers, you know, very cerebral, like so they think the game through in a way that maybe others do not so you know he's he's gonna have a lot of options whatever he wants to do you would think
1: yeah if he does do that i agree he'd be good at it he's gonna have to pick up the pace a little he's a very slow talker bit of a slow talker al
0: as long as he's not a close talker
1: better than a close talker and better than a low talker or else next thing you know his broadcast partner's wearing a puffy shirt on the air
2: then you got a real problem why
1: are you wearing this now
2: why am i wearing it now i'll tell you why i'm wearing it now because the low talker asked me to, that's why. And I said yes. Do you know why? Because I couldn't hear her.
0: When did, she, when did she ask you this?
2: When we
1: were at dinner, when Kramer went to the bathroom.
0: I didn't hear anything. No, of course not! Nobody hears anything when this
1: woman speaks!
0: Well, Nationals up next for them is a 10 game road trip and then a series, a season ending home series against the Boston Red Sox. So we are down now to one more series at Nationals Park, and that's it. Man, the season, I mean, look, I was going to say it flies by. It doesn't. I mean, it is a lengthy season. But interesting piece, I don't know if you caught this in the post by Barry's Verluga about the challenges for the Nationals moving forward in terms of trying to draw at Nationals Park. You know, we have these announced attendances for games, and then we have the actual attendance at these games. And lately it sure seems like the number of people at Nationals Park do not match up to the announced attendance at Nationals Park. But being there, what are you gathering? What are you observing in terms of these crowds, especially for this series that we just had against
1: the Rockies? I actually thought the weekend crowds were not bad. They announced 26 today, and obviously there weren't 26 in the park, but that didn't feel egregious to me. I'm willing to believe that 26,000 people bought tickets for this game and and something in the range were actually here. I could see that. The previous series against the Marlins, it was maybe a little more notable that it felt like a lot less. like They were were putting numbers out there that sounded a lot more than what were there. But I think we have to admit that there's probably a lot of people, season ticket holders, who've just decided they aren't going to come to every game at this point and probably having a tough time selling them on the secondary market as well. So, you know, you understand that. In all honesty, I actually have been more impressed with the crowd since the trade-off than what it might have been otherwise. In the situation that they are in, you could have easily seen it fall off a cliff and you're playing games in front of crowds under 10,000. They still have never drawn less than 10,999 in the history of Nationals Park. And that's all the way back in 2010. So this year, I think the lowest was around 12,000, at least announced. And over the last week, not too bad, actually. Now, next year, I think that's the key. We've talked about how it's always a domino effect. It's the year after. And I'm sure the season ticket base is going to go down next year because of the state of the team, whereas this year there are probably more people excited to hang on to their season tickets coming off the World Series. So that's going to be the challenge next year and moving forward where you are going to have to start seeing some better competitive baseball, some more bright signs of the future to get the attendance back up. But As a wise man named Stan Caston said many years ago, we'll get the attendance we deserve. And I think that pretty much applies. In most cases, there are a few towns where that may not be true. There are some towns that are going to draw no matter how bad the team is. And there are some towns that are never going to draw no matter how good the team is. But I think in D.C. we've seen, for the most part, they get the attendance that they deserve.
0: Yeah. And if you're looking around baseball, I mean, the attendance numbers are not great in a lot of areas. And in some areas, they're brutally bad. I mean, look up some of the Orioles attendance numbers over these last few weeks. I did think the crowd for that Game 3 against the Marlins this week, that was pretty brutal. That looked like there were about 15 people in the ballpark. That That was that Wednesday afternoon game. But by and large, I don't think the crowds have been that bad. I think at times the crowds have actually been fairly loud. When the fireworks got canceled the other night, uh, there was actually a pretty loud boo. I mean, so I I think all things considered, you're right, it, it could be a lot worse. And the Nationals, by and large, have been a pretty good drawing team during this run of success. Like they've been one of the better attendance drawing teams in baseball. So I think that's a credit to Washington, D.C. as a baseball city, and will be interesting to see what the crowds end up being for next year. Obviously, you have the pandemic still going on as well. I don't think that the pandemic is nearly the deterrent that it has been. I think at this point for, you know, not everybody, but for a lot of people, if you want to go to games, you go to games. I mean, if you've been watching college football, you see plenty of people at these games, NFL games, same kind of thing. So I think if you're good, people will show up, but you got to be good. You got to give people a reason to show up, and next season will be a test.
1: The one caveat to that I would put because I have heard this from a good number of, of parents, is there are still families that are hesitant until their kids are vaccinated. and that's one thing we kind of overlook maybe at times. Hopefully that's coming soon and by next spring that's not an issue anymore and it'll be interesting to see if there are more kids and more families around. That's the one remaining hangup I think for some fans, if you are a family with kids under 12, there's still some hesitancy to come to ball games.
0: You tell us what you think. You'd always reach us on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can always email the podcast, Nats Chat Podcast, at gmail.com, including if you'd like to share a tale of October 2019, how you experienced the Nats winning the World Series. Also, if you have a prediction for 2022 for the Nationals, you can email us those things, or you can send us a voice memo with you telling us of those things. Just record yourself speaking into your smartphone, and then email the file to us again, the uh, email address, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. The ERA for the Secret Weapon is back under four, where it belongs. Scherzer and Espino. That's it. That's the list this season in terms of Nationals pitchers, minimum 75 innings, ERA under four. Get yourself a Secret Weapon t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
2: Avila will dig his way in. He's got a one for two night. An RBI single in the second. He flied out with a couple on in the fourth. The Red Sox in the bottom of the sixth inning will have Middlebrooks, Ellsbury, and Victorino. In the air to Ryan well hit. Back is Victorino, and this
0: ball is gone. It's a four.
2: It's a five nothing Tiger lead as Avila goes deep to right.